welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. Some years ago, probably around 2007, I saw a photo of some graffiti written by U.S. soldiers in Iraq. We're at war while America's at the mall. Regardless of your politics, it's hard to disagree with that assessment. George W. Bush encouraged us to go out and shop in the days after the September 11th attacks, and a lot of people did, while his administration constructed the surveillance state, scaremongered about the axis of evil, launched military actions that led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, and consolidated power in terrifying, unconstitutional ways. Not that Obama or Trump did much better. They made it seem as though the war in Afghanistan was nearly done by drawing down troops, switching to drone warfare, dropping, quote, the mother of all bombs, and conducting the most aggressive attacks in the war's history while engaging in peace talks with the Taliban. In the September issue of the magazine, Andrew Quilty offers an account of the past 20 years through the lives of one Afghan family, a perspective that is so often ignored or distorted for political ends. I spoke with Quilty, who photographed and wrote the story, about a variety of factors that have reshaped the country and its uncertain future. As you explain early on in your piece, the impact of the United States' intervention in Afghanistan has been uneven at best, where cities, as most cities do, become more modern, while the more rural parts of the country remained more traditional. So where have you been since the Taliban retook power? And how would you describe the situation where you are now? I haven't left Kabul since the Taliban took power, and that's for a couple of reasons, the most mundane of which is because of the fact that I'm a long-term resident of Kabul, and I have a lease on a house, and I have a dog, and I have um, I employ a couple of staff at the house where I live, and I have house guests who, who come and go. And I also have uh, a community around me of you know friends and colleagues who at this moment, have been going through an incredibly tumultuous, traumatic uh, period and who I've been, you know, like all my international expat foreign friends living here, trying to assist to get out of the country as, as many of them have, have wanted to do um, because they've, for good reason, felt threatened by the the incoming Taliban. So uh, that, that, that's partly why I've needed to stay close to home to, to take care of these kind of immediate concerns, which um, I suppose I, I wouldn't have to worry about if I was a, um, a journalist visiting from outside the country. And, you know, in which case I'd, I would be able to focus entirely on, on reporting and journalism. So it's, it's quite a unusual set of circumstances, but um, mm. the, the, the conflict actually hasn't been as difficult to navigate as I'd expected. It just, um, I mean, the, the urgency of getting people out of the country who felt as though they were in imminent danger. I mean, reporting all of a sudden didn't really seem anywhere near as important as, as those more urgent, critical concerns. Um, and secondly, it's because unlike almost any other time in which I've lived in Afghanistan, which has been for nearly eight years now, I feel as though 
the heart of the story is in Kabul. Whereas in previous years, partly because of the lack of reporting that was being done out in rural areas, and also because it was where the war was really being fought, I always tried to spend as much time outside Kabul as I could. And yeah, so it's this, this strange dynamic where all of a sudden the, the, the well, like a couple of months ago anyway, the the war kind of, or the, the, the front line of the war all of a sudden did a, a 180 and the, the guns which were previously pointing out from the provincial capitals were now trained on the provincial capitals and, and Kabul itself. And all of a sudden, you know, Kabul became the the epicenter and the the jewel in the crown for the for the Taliban and so I've actually been quite um a, a lot less anxious as a journalist being uh, somewhat stuck in Kabul than I um would have been at, at any other period of my time in Kabul or in Afghanistan I should say and the fact that you are deeply embedded or you're not just visiting let's say mm-hmm. like other journalists might be you encountered the family you write about in your piece. They live in Wardock province, which is, it's a rural place, but it became of strategic interest over the course of the war, rather tragically. So what has happened with Abdul Jalil Ane's family since the time that your story went to print? So I'm thinking like, you know, you finished it and it's sort of signed off because there mm-hmm. is a, that for listeners, there's like a two month delay between when mm-hmm. an author finishes a piece and when it's actually printed. So, and again, obviously a lot of things have been happening. I regret to say that I haven't really been in contact with the family since the story went to print, mostly because of the rapidly changing environment here um politically and and militarily i mean it was it was around the time that that story got put to bed that the momentum of the taliban on the battlefield was really picking up pace and um i remember just before we we put the story to bed we you know we were updating the the figures uh, we were updating the status of control of the nine districts within the province of Wardak. It just, you know, right up until the, the day that the story got put to bed and every day um, another district was falling in Wardak and and then, you know, on one day two districts would fall. So it was really building up to a crescendo two months ago, as you said, when, when this story was being signed off on. And so ever since then, things have been so chaotic on the ground and uh, you know i suppose as a as a journalist and as a as a resident with um certain responsibilities and friends and colleagues here who all of a sudden started to see the the, the writing on the wall and the necessity to make exit strategies so yeah, a lot of the um, I, I guess the um, communication I, I'm, I'm sure I would have had with these um, with a, like a lot of people had it not been for the circumstances on the ground sort of fell away in the last few months and then certainly since the Taliban took control, um, I mean there's been so many people I've I've fallen out of temporary touch with just because like everyone here um, we've been consumed by the what's been happening from from day to day and just trying to 
keep up not, not only with the news, but with, you know, more, more practical matters like, you know, how to negotiate with our new Taliban guards at the entrance to our street and, mm. you know, getting the press accreditation from the Taliban and working out, you know, what's permissible and what's not. And, you know, can, can I ride home for a friend's place on my motorcycle late at night without getting in trouble? And can I have female friends over to the house, you know, bringing them past the, the Taliban guards? So it's, it's been this yeah, really huge um, transitional per- period, both um, obviously for the country, but also just on a you know, more personal level for, for everyone. Hmm. Part of what's striking about the war is the extent to which short-term gains were prioritized above long-term ones by the U.S. military, and that goes some way to explaining why the U.S. was there for 20 years. Afghanistan's unemployment crisis in 2014, which led Nasrullah and hundreds of thousands of Afghans to flee to Iran for work, is a repercussion of one of those, quote, achievements, because that was the year when there was this huge troop drawdown and all the foreign investment kind of left the country. So from your reporting, do you understand this short-term approach as careerist of those in charge, or does it come from the fact that the U.S. military was never really suited to address what it deemed the country's concerns? I, I don't think the, the the generals and politicians in charge of running the war were necessarily deliberately careerist, but by virtue of the systems and, and structures by which the war was run, I suppose you know mo- most soldiers who deployed here came in you know six or nine or twelve or eighteen month deployments and then was cycled out, and a lot of that historical knowledge was cycled out with them. So I think, I think it's more of a systemic issue than, than a, an individualistic one where soldiers and officers came in looking to spend a short deployment in order to work their way up the ranks, although I'm sure there's an argument to say that that's the way it played out. I, I think it'd be cynical even for me to suggest that it was done deliberately by those individuals. That said, I mean, there, there isn't an American commanding general who hasn't gone on after their deployment as commander of US and or all international forces in, in Afghanistan hasn't gone on to, you know, huge corporate careers or political ones or with, you know, influential positions on with think tanks and, and the like, which, which is a strange kind of warped meritocracy where, yes, you, you have worked your way to the top of what at times during the 20-year war was the, the preeminent foreign military engagement for the US around the world. Oh, sorry. <laughs> After all these years, he still barks at gunfire. Oh. <laughs> After 12 years. Moosh. Hey. He had a terrible ordeal the other night when the last American aircraft pulled out and there was about two hours of very intense celebratory gunfire. Mm. Almost barked himself hoarse. Oh. But... Yeah, this kind of this warped meritocracy where the the commanding general of the world's greatest military force 
returns from the, the year or two deployed to Afghanistan where despite all the the public assurances little has been achieved yet they you know walk straight in the front door of a huge think tank or into a chairmanship for Raytheon or or Boeing or some other arms manufacturer it's um the success rate on the ground in Afghanistan doesn't seem to determine whether or not they'd be a, a good fit in in the corporate world or in or in politics necessarily right so you know 2014 a lot of people had to leave there just were no jobs in part because of there was no more foreign investment and also because a lot of the jobs that were to be had were obtained through patronage networks or sort of family relations and and we can get into that in a moment but a lot of those people have returned and now it seems we're in a time where people might be leaving again. So how has Afghanistan dealt with the return and exit of so much of its population? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. And I was I was asking a, a neighbor, in fact, um, I live next to the a, a compound where the International Organization for Migration, the, the UN's migration agency, are based here. And I mean, they evacuated, I think, on the day of the Taliban takeover. But before they did, Kabul, certainly, and, and Afghanistan more broadly, was at the beginning of another one of these mass exoduses like we saw in 2014 after the, the winding up of the international combat mission in Afghanistan. On this occasion, the exodus was, was happening for a a slightly different reason, I think, in in 2014, 2015, which saw hundreds of thousands of Afghans heading for Europe. While a lot of people then were leaving in part because of the prospect of deteriorating security, the the, the vast majority, I think the, the data suggests, were leaving because of the deteriorating economic circumstances and you can kind of draw that out based on the type of people who were leaving, most of whom were were young men, many of whom were um, presumably out of work since the huge war economy that had grown out of the American-led presence here had had wound down substantially. And all those jobs in logistics and support and the general running of um, these... <laughs> There he goes again. The dog is a good reminder of how much gunfire there is right now. So I think it's <laughs> yeah. a fair, he's made a fair point. So okay, <laughs> let's good. continue. Good, good. Uh, I think whereas now the the greater reason for the outflow of, of Afghans from Afghanistan is because of uh, fear of the return of the Taliban in uh, 2014-2015 that the root cause was, while also affected by deteriorating security and the resurgence of the Taliban, economic reasons were more of a driver back then than they are now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you, you once again you're seeing a, a real, a really serious brain drain, and you know which has happened. I mean, it began in the last couple of months as it became clear that an eventual Taliban takeover of the country was almost in- inevitable, even if it wasn't expected to come in, you know, as quickly as it did. And then, of course, 
once the the Taliban took Kabul, even before the Americans had completed their withdrawal, that just expedited that um, the, the urgency to get out like no one could have imagined. And then the the lure of these evacuation flights for many people who didn't even have valid travel documents or, uh, you know, I'm talking even people who didn't even have passports, which is quite um, quite unusual circumstances, I think, and, and shows just how critical the situation was and, and how, I suppose, determined the US and, and other international actors were to at least be seen to be doing the right thing by the, the people who had helped them here. But the, the, I mean, the brain drain that has occurred in the last two weeks since August 15 is just immense. I mean, you've had the backbone of the government and civil society and, I mean, not just the backbone of the Afghan press corps, but, you know, the, the works, you know, the, the, the backbone, the spine and the flesh, like it's all gone. There's, there's very little left. Um, I don't even know how that some of these networks are still functioning, but I think on a, on a very, very much a skeleton staff to go back to the human anatomy analogies. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really devastating this time and just the speed with which it's happened is, it's really hard to comprehend and, and hard to comprehend how the, how the, you know, the, these aspects of society that have, have been built up, you know, quite successfully in the last 20 years will, will be able to recover or if they will at all. I mean, the, the, there's not even any, there's very little even remnants left of, of some of these sectors. You know, I go back again to the, the media sector just because I'm familiar with it and it's really hard to know how, how any of them will survive. Um, also, with the, without the international funding that, that propped a lot of the um, or much of the media sector up here, yeah, it's, it's been a devastating few weeks. And you have a podcast called Afghanistan After America, where you speak to Afghans who work in the media, who work in anti-corruption, a Taliban member, different people from different slices of life in Afghanistan. And you recently spoke with Dr. Yama Tarabi about corruption, kickbacks, and patronage networks in Afghanistan that emerged after the war. And the extent of the corruption has, to a certain extent, bolstered the public's opinion of the Taliban because, well, how can you trust, you know, to get anything done? You probably have to bribe someone. And I mean, Dr. Tarabi notes that it's not like corruption didn't exist in Afghanistan before the U.S. intervention, but there's a legitimate epidemic of corruption that extends through all parts of life. And that's, you know, things like construction, where there are ghost schools or fuel mm -hmm. to banking, mm -hmm. to the security sector, you know, ghost soldiers, all these different things that, you know, people are getting paid for and not really following through on and there's no repercussion. Mm -hmm. So what role has the international community played in creating this environment in the country? I think the simple answer is that they've funded it. They've, they've funded the corruption epidemic. For, for corruption to take hold, there, there needs to be um, money or resources or capital with which to undertake it. And it has just been funneled into Afghanistan 
with so little oversight over the past 20 years that it's just become a, a bonanza for, for anyone wanting to make easy money skimming off the top or, um, you know, inventing new ways of, of graft. Um, like, like you mentioned, the, the ghost, the ghost soldiers. Um, I mean, I'm not going to say that it's, this is the first time, um, got ghost soldiers have ever existed, but I guess it, it's, it's at least the first time, um, I'd heard of it and, you know, it was done very successfully and could you explain the mechanism? Yeah, sure. It's, um, so a, a ghost soldier is basically a, a member of one of the arms of the security forces who exists on paper, but not in reality. So it, it, it may be someone who once had a, uh, had a role, had a position in the Afghan national army, for example, but who, who quit or who was killed or injured and taken off the battlefield. But their name was never scrubbed from their personnel sheets. So their commander would keep receiving salaries on their behalf, keep receiving equipment and, and meals and all the other kinds of resources that are required um, for a, a soldier to maintain themselves and pocket it themselves. So not only does that undermine the mission of the of the army itself in securing defending the the nation and the government but it i mean it undermines the morale of the the soldiers who do exist and who and who are going out and risking their lives to uh, do the job that they were tasked with you know so you, it's it's just one of the many examples of why i think the Afghan National Security Forces folded as easily as they did in the past couple of months as soon as they came under some sustained pressure and as soon as momentum turned against them on the battlefield, there was this very little incentive for them to keep fighting and to risk their lives. I think that they would all have been asking for what, you know, for for our commander who's been, you know, skimming money off our salaries um, for years for this government who is not only corrupt but who doesn't necessarily represent our interests and is is more concerned about his own um, welfare and those of the elites with whom he's surrounded himself and not about the interests of the of the people out in the provinces so you know what, what why would we what incentive do we have to fight for our lives and fight for the, for the life of the the Afghan democracy, and I think the the collapse of the of the government and the the flight of the president and the collapse of all the democratic institutions and the security forces goes a long way to. I mean, it, it, there's your answer. That was the end result of um, all this sort of slow chipping away, uh, white anting, undermining of the of this, this system that uh, the US tried to put in place and build and, and nurture over, over the course of 20 years. And, you know, you see that impact, you know, like I said, it impacts all walks of life. But, you know, if somebody says that they're going to build a school and then they don't build a school, there's no repercussion. And that sort of leads us to the question of Afghan women, 
because a not insignificant part of the justification for entering in 2001 was that, you know, rich white women would go on television, put on burkas and would be like, I can't even see through this thing. And just as a yet another mm-hmm. cudgel to sort of beat the country with after, you know, Bin Laden didn't turn out to be there. But the reality is that education for girls sometimes stops after sixth grade because there are no secondary schools. You know, sometimes they don't exist. Sometimes they're too far away. And I'm certainly not asking for a referendum on women's rights in Afghanistan. But do you envision the same city-country divide playing out with maintaining the, quote, feminism or the gender parity the army attempted to create? Because there are women in the country who are deeply invested in preserving feminism, but there are also a lot of women who are deeply invested in not participating in feminism. They want to, you know, maintain, you know, how they were raised. They want to raise their daughters the way they were raised. And, you know, that's quite Mm -hmm. frankly, they're right. Mm. I think it's a question of having the choice as to whether or not to be able to put your daughters through school. And that is obviously what the concern is with the Taliban, that they eliminate the ability for families to choose whether or not to send their daughters to school. And I should also just qualify that by saying we don't actually know yet whether the Taliban will ban girls above uh, grade six or above uh, puberty from attending school. It's been assumed that that will be official Taliban policy, but a lot of the Taliban's rhetoric so far has been a lot more moderate than what was expected. And uh, obviously it is only rhetoric at this stage and everyone here is holding their breath to see whether or not their, their actions follow the rhetoric. I think as far as the urban-rural divide goes, uh, aside from some advances in development of infrastructure like roads and better health clinics and schools in, in rural parts of Afghanistan. Culturally, not that much has changed in the last 20 years and not much has changed for that matter probably in the last 50 years. I think the choices that have been made available in the last 20 years have likely shifted the the mindset in even more remote places in uh, areas like like education in particular but the the concentration of uh, the the development dollars and aid spending has vastly favored the urban areas in the last 20 years so while those who were in the more populated Uh, provincial capitals and on their peripheries. I I think you've probably seen a a, quite a significant cultural shift um, in terms of, once again, um, education. But um, farther away, those very conservative mindsets are are pretty well ingrained and and the poverty in these areas makes it difficult um, or extra difficult for... it, It doesn't provide an environment that enables cultural change. I mean, for, for for the people in rural parts of Afghanistan who live more or less subsistence 
lifestyles where they often don't even own land, but they basically uh, rent other people's land on which they grow a crop or a couple of crops per season or per year from which they will take a portion to sustain their family through that year with food, the surplus of which they might sell at market. So they have um, a little bit of spending money for, for that year. But it's, it's very rare for, the, for these uh, impoverished rural communities to have enough money to be upwardly mobile, to send their daughters or their sons, for that matter, to uh, provincial capitals to go to schools, let alone university. In fact, the, the poverty rates in Afghanistan have increased since 2007, 2008 significantly, which is, is quite a bizarre statistic to, to note, um, given the amount of money that has been invested here um, to eradicate things such as poverty, or, or at least to provide opportunities to uh, er eradicate or to lessen the bur burden of poverty across the country. I mean, why do you think that is? Is it because of the corruption or is it, again, sort of, there's not the, the <laughs> I want to say there's a better way to do it, but it just seems like <laughs> there's not ever going to be a better way to do it. And uh, we, we learned that lesson the hard way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, gosh, it's another huge question, which I'm not qualified to answer, but I, I would say in, in the further the war went on and the more competitive the Taliban became on the battlefield, the more difficult it became to access areas that were under Taliban control or influence. And by 2015, that was, you know, a significant portion of the country. It was, it was about 40% of the country. And that 40% of the country also happened to be the, the you know, the, the more rural, remote, and, and, and also uh, impoverished parts of the country, under, underdeveloped parts of the country. So the, aid and the development spending just never really got to a lot of these places. And instead, I suppose it was it was funneled to the places that required it less, although that's not to say that they, they didn't need it themselves. Right. And just as with the corruption, over the past 20 years, Afghanistan has been used as a proving ground for new military strategies and technology. So there's a sort of a meta layer of um, not entirely ethical stuff going on. And I mean, obviously, drone warfare is the best known example of this, largely because these were they were imprecise, cruel, and often extrajudicial killings. You've written quite a bit about CIA-01, which is a CIA-guided Afghan strike force. Could you talk about that development, which it may not be new, but it's you know it plays a crucial role in the lives of everyday Afghans, and what other quote unquote new approaches to war have been tested out in Afghanistan that are perhaps not as familiar mm -hmm. to the public? Mm. Again, it's probably it's not really my area of expertise, defense and and ballistics and weaponry, but one in particular stands out, which was the the so-called mother of all bombs, which was supposedly dropped on a ISIS uh, cave complex in 2017, soon after Trump came to power. And it was a bit of a, a muscle flex, I think, at the time. It was the, the largest non-nuclear weapon ever utilised in, in wartime. 
basically this enormous bomb that gets pushed out the back of a C-130 military transport aircraft and, you know, has, has a catastrophic eff- effect on whatever it's um, dropped on. And, look, th- there's been very little reporting actually done on on either the the immediate outcome or very little serious investigative reporting other than what was dished out by the Pentagon at the time and and very little reporting of consequence on any after effects there, there had there has been some local Af- Afghan reporting done on some claims of birth defects or, or higher incidence of cancer among people living in the area where it was dropped but um, I don't think anything's anything um, particularly convincing has been done yet and and pa- perhaps it's even uh, too early to to know but it it also just goes to show the as you put it that the, the fact that Afghanistan has been used as a bit of a petri dish for testing new new weapons and new strategies and, and techniques tactics I should say another one that you mentioned were these um, what were collectively known as counterterrorism pursuit teams which were set up very early on in the war by the CIA um, they're effectively tasked with chasing al-Qaeda remnants and Taliban commanders around the border area and often across the border into Pakistan from uh, east of the Duran line, the, the border that separates Afghanistan and Pakistan. And they, in fact, were some of the last Afghan security units to survive the, the Taliban overthrow because they had such close relations and such protection in, in high places within the, well, in fact, not with, with the Pentagon, mm-hmm. but with the, the CIA. And as a, a bizarre anecdote um, to the end of this war, you actually had a number of these counterterrorism pursuit teams tasked with securing one or, or two of the, the gates um, through which Afghan, American and other international citizens had to pass to get into the airport and get on these evacuation planes, which was bizarre. They were, I mean, there are these extremely secretive paramilitary units, which, you know, are very rarely seen in public by anyone other than those who they are um, targeting. And even more bizarre was the fact that they were out on the the perimeter of the um, Hamid Karzai International Airport, the International Airport for Kabul, in what was essentially Taliban-controlled Kabul outside the airport. And they were there, you know, to some degree with the blessings of the Taliban who, who had um, developed this immense animosity towards over the years because of all the not only the the destruction they'd had on their membership on the taliban's membership and their leadership but on the communities within which they lived in more rural parts of afghanistan zero one was the preeminent unit um, among about half a dozen of these counterterrorism pursuit teams and I did quite a lot of reporting on them, and they are actually the they were the perpetrators of the attack on the house, which is what the story in Harper's this month centres on. But they 
that attack on that particular house was just one of a number of similar attacks, dozens in fact, that occurred over a period of about 18 months, which coincided with the time the Trump administration was engaged in peace talks with the Taliban in Doha. So it was this sort of double talk where you had all the rhetoric of, of peace and reconciliation on the one hand, and then on the other, you had this very shadowy war happening uh, behind the scenes in in parts of the country which were off-limits to the media and from which any information came out was always going to be assumed to be Taliban propaganda. So, um, yeah, and, and these are... These were some of the earliest units that were built up by the CIA, uh, by any uh, American agency or organization soon after the October 2001 invasion. Afghanistan had a very, or Afghanistan has a very low COVID-19 vaccination rate in no small part because the CIA used a vaccination campaign as a mode of tracking and monitoring civilians. Has the Taliban been able to leverage COVID and how has it impacted civilians? You mean uh, since they took control of the government? In the sort of the lead up to the takeover and mm -hmm. now, I would ask. I haven't heard mention of COVID-19 since long before um, it became clear that the Taliban were going to take power. It's become, yeah, very much a, a secondary issue here. And in fact, one of my, one of my housemates today, uh, an American journalist, visited the COVID-19 hospital in the designated COVID-19 hospital in, in Kabul yesterday, I think. And he said that the admissions had gone way down since the Taliban took over, and that that was partly due to the fact that there had been less spread and less infection since the Taliban, Taliban had taken over because people were staying home and were effectively isolating themselves in their homes, um, even, even if they were spending a lot of time with uh, family in, in close quarters. They weren't mixing out in public as much as they had. But it was also because people are just nervous and so staying close to home for that reason because they you know, feel as safe at home as they do anywhere. The, the only um, – I mean, the, the Taliban, when COVID first broke out and the, the pandemic first spread to Afghanistan, they did make some early efforts to at least appear to be concerned about it. There was one amusing story where the Taliban organised a, a kind of press junket, which was quite unusual, even for just 18 months ago, um, where they invited a bunch of journalists from the eastern city of Jalalabad to an area in the neighbouring province of Lagman, and they wanted to show off how seriously they were taking COVID and, um, you know, everyone was wearing masks and they had someone with one of those temperature guns. And it turned out that that um, temperature gun was actually a couple of pieces of wood taped together with, with white electrical tape. So, look, I think, I think any Taliban efforts to combat COVID 
were probably in their own self-interest in terms of getting, you know, medical assistance and, and, and other kinds of funding and assistance from international NGOs. And, and I suppose for just for public perception purposes, you know, to, um, to look as though they were concerned with, you know, this public health crisis. Mm. And I wanted to go back to the question of the media networks in Afghanistan, because Tolo News was the first 24-hour news network Mm -hmm. in Afghanistan. And Tolo TV, which got in trouble for airing an Indian soap opera that was very popular in Pakistan, it Mm -hmm. also, you know, it's like this sort of media conglomerate, right? Tolo also owns Afghan's first privately owned radio station, Arman FM, which plays music. So could you describe the impact those media channels had on the country and sort of, you know, you say that they were running kind of on a skeleton crew, but the Taliban is kind of being like, hey, we're a softer, gentler Taliban now. You can listen to music, but maybe a scholar will, Islamic scholar will tell you it's bad. Could you describe sort of what the media environment was like before basically August 15th? (laughs) Well, it was... A little bit of a mirage in the fact that on the face of it, there were scores of television networks and hundreds of radio stations and numerous print news outlets. But a lot of them, I would say the the vast majority of them, relied on funding from the likes of USAID. And I think the the industry as a whole was always going to, struggle to uh, survive past the the full uh, US withdrawal and the and the uh, divestment in media funding but that said um i think it was one of the in spite of the mirage like nature of of the sector it was still incredibly influential and something that i think will feature in the in the memories of this generation of afghans i I mean i think it will really the you know the the news jingles and the the personalities the presenters will really remain as icons of of this period because there was not only such a huge amount of growth in the media sector but also in the in terms of communications and connectivity it's you know very common for um, Afghans, certainly in in the provincial capitals and and the national capital Kabul, to have smartphones and be you know constantly connected to the to the latest news updates, political news, and international current affairs, and so on. And even in rural areas, the um, preponderance of radio programs it was it was a huge benefit, I think, even to rural communities because of you know, how little infrastructure is required to transmit radio broadcasts. So I think it was, it's definitely been a, one of the greatest success stories, but I suppose we also have to consider the fact that, you know, the, the, the greater the success of a sector like the media, you know, the more there is to lose now at this point where it's all under such huge threat, the founder of Tolo News and Tolo TV, Saad Massani, um, I saw quoted recently, I think in the New York Times, as saying that he was surprised 
to see that Tolo News, uh, Tolo TV, were, were even still up and running a couple of weeks into the Taliban. I think there was a, a, a wide assumption that the network would just fold immediately the, the moment the Taliban came into power and, and that all the staff would flee because it was assumed that they would be, you know, that that'll have uh, targets on their heads. And so, you know, it's, it's another one of these, like the, the collective breath holding exercise of, of the entire country and everyone who's watching the country is also, you know, pertinent is particularly pertinent to the, to the media industry as it is for education, women's education, women's rights and, and the like. And absolutely. Yeah, I think it's um I think it's inevitable that there'll be some level of restriction imposed on the media. I've already seen that in my day-to-day reporting. There are things which I think instinctively members of the Taliban don't want you to see or don't want to enable you to document for others to see. And on the other hand, I think there is some thinking within the group that no, we 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 need to loosen the shackles a bit, and and you can see this this kind of conflict, you know, in the in the minds of of the Taliban who are instinctively want to restrict me from you know taking a photo, for example, today of the queues outside banks because you know it, this is embarrassing for the Taliban. It's it, you know it's showing the the strain on the economy, and then at the same time you see a little switch flick when he remembers oh hang on no we've been told (laughs) my commander has told me you know go easy on the media let them do their work so you have this yeah this um cognitive dissonance between instinct and and order or orders i should say right well thank you so much this is really fascinating and again it's because you are in a unique position to observe this and have been observing this conflict and i think it's um it's rare information, and it should not be, quite frankly. <laughs> Thanks, Violet. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 